The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you the keys of persuasion and conflict resolution. My goal is to empower you to engage in these conversations confidently and effectively by not only sharing what works, but by also uncovering why these techniques work through revealing the psychological principles that lie behind persuasion. Our guest today is Becky Saltzman. Becky is a curiosity expert, and she trains corporations, organizations, and individuals to cultivate a culture of curiosity and use applied curiosity as a strategic tool. I wanted to have Becky on the show today to talk about how we can use curiosity in our efforts to persuade and resolve conflicts. This is a really fun interview, and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Becky, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay, well, I was raised in a virtual cabinet of curiosities. When I was six years old, my parents cut my hair and dressed me as a boy, and they dragged me to what would become the first of hundreds of auctions. I come from a long line of master persuader auctioneers, and they wanted me to learn the family business. So greasy sawmills, bankrupt business parks, old furniture stores, defunct furniture stores. And the lessons I learned in those greasy warehouses of my youth, I later confirmed in the dusty halls of academia as a graduate student in behavioral science. And the biggest lesson I would say, other than being quizzed and learning to value questions over single answers, was that what we see is never all that there is. And that took me through a career mostly in sales. So I was a retail buyer. So a lot of negotiations on the buying end. And then I was in real estate, commercial and residential real estate. And all the while I was tinkering in my curiosity lab, trying to find a foundation of curiosity, trying to understand the science of curiosity, and then trying to find frameworks for applying curiosity in strategic ways. So that's kind of my background that has taken me to writing a couple of books, both involving curiosity. One is called Arousing the Bi-Curious. That's B-U-Y, Curious, a sales book. And the second is Living Curiously, How to Use Curiosity to Be Remarkable and Do Good Stuff. And finally, my work at Apply Curiosity Lab, where I teach companies, organizations, and individuals how to apply curiosity as a strategic tool. That is fascinating. I am, I'm really excited about how we could uh, use this for negotiation. Before we get to that, though, I want to clarify for some of the audience who might not be familiar, what exactly does a retail buyer do? Oh, a retail buyer goes in on behalf of department stores. I mean, it's changed a lot because so much of this has become centralized and now algorithmic. But back in the day, before there was any AI applied to buying, real people would go from their department store, representing department store chains. I was with May Department Stores, Macy's before that. Go to New York, go to the showrooms and have people traipse on by and say, okay, I want this assortment, that assortment, negotiating pricing, negotiating packages. I was in sportswear. I was in junior sportswear. So I was dealing with guest sportswear and 
during the 80s and all of the drama with that. So that's what a retail buyer does, kind of a negotiating on behalf of department stores for getting merchandise into the stores. Very cool. Okay, yeah. So now I'm now I'm seeing the connection. So you had the retail buying and then the the residential real estate and of course the auctioning background back in the day. So you have a lot of experience doing this type of work. Absolutely. And all through, I think the the through line or the common denominator was the role of curiosity in all of this, whether you're arousing the vicarious in sales or actually using it as a strategic applied tool for the number of things that we kind of address at Applied Curiosity Lab. So yeah. Very cool. And so what is your definition that you use for curiosity? Okay. So when you review the literature, two kinds of curiosity emerge. One that I call free range curiosity and one that I call applied curiosity. And if I had to describe it, free range curiosity is kind of the epistemic, the search for knowledge. So maybe if you equate it to science, it would be basic science. So studying the molecular structure of cells in order to better understand the molecular structure of cells, for example, kind of what is being ostracized right now in the world of science, kind of this general search for knowledge. And then applied curiosity is really the application, the strategic application of curiosity. And the analogy in science would be applied science. So searching the or researching the structure of the molecular structure of cells for creating better chemotherapy treatments, for example. So applied curiosity is really using curiosity in my work as an applied tool in three specific areas. One is sales and influence. One is creative problem solving and innovation. And then the third area I call busting brain bugs or cognitive bias training for better decision making. And that's where we take the application of curiosity into those specific endeavors. So that's kind of the distinction that I make with curiosity. So how do we use curiosity as a strategic tool to give us a competitive edge in negotiation or persuasion? Okay. So first of all, ideally, you're not starting a negotiation with persuasion. You're starting a negotiation with curiosity. And I think sometimes we conflate negotiation and persuasion. And they're different. They're very different There might be a Venn diagram where a negotiation becomes a persuasion, but they're different. And actually the science of persuasion, and you probably know as well as I do, is pretty clear. The science of negotiation is still muddier. So understanding whether you are in a negotiation or a persuasion. So is the first application of psychology. So if you look at negotiation, it's distribution of resources. If you look at persuasion, it's party A, convincing party B of something. An example is the, a lot of people know the uh, copy machine study where copier A is making copies and copier B comes in and says, can I cut in and make copies? And there's a certain percentage of the time that copier A says you can cut in and make photocopies. And there's a certain percentage of the time they say no. So copier B comes in and says, can I make photocopies because I need to make photocopies. And so they've given an argument for kind of a lame one, right? Because I need to make copies. But the because becomes the magic word. They've given an argument for the persuasive endeavor. Scenario B, copier B comes in and says, can I make copies? Because, and they give a good reason. I have to get into a meeting right now and present to 20 people. And there is an increased capitulation of copier A letting B in. All right. In negotiations, you have to be curious about this because there's evidence in research and negotiations that giving a reason or an argument when you're first making a request can backfire on you, particularly if the counter arguments are easy. So just 
that's a simple example where you might think that you are in a persuasive endeavor, but you need to be curious about whether you're in a negotiation or whether you're in a persuasive endeavor and when a negotiation changes and switches to becoming a persuasive endeavor. So that's the first place to bring curiosity to the negotiating table. This is fantastic. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I love when we start to get into the nitty gritty of this because I think that's where the real value is. So why would you say is curiosity the necessary first step? There's different kinds of negotiations. You're negotiating for a job offer on behalf of yourself, or you're negotiating as a representative on behalf of two or three countries. It's kind of the same thing. I mean, you have to look at, you have to bring curiosity to the negotiation. So make a simple example. Maybe you're not an international conflict resolution negotiator, but the same thing applies. You don't even know all of the things on the table before you. So you've got this job offer and you think, I'm going to go in and persuade them to give me salary X. Now, if you haven't even been curious about what other things they can offer you. Maybe they can offer you more vacation or a better stock option package or a fast track to faster promotion or a really specific mentorship opportunity. There are all kinds of things that maybe they haven't even discussed. Maybe they are something that they're installing or putting in place in the next six months. But if you go in and you're not even curious because you are approaching a negotiation in persuasion mode, you can get blindsided and end up with something that is a distribution of resources that is not to your master advantage. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And I think in the classic negotiation literature on this, when you think back to uh, Yuri and Fisher, when it comes to getting to yes, this is the difference between starting off in a distributive fashion versus seeking first to expand the pie through creativity Right. And, you know, you have to use, sometimes you have to use divergent and convergent thinking. And that's one of the areas that we use curiosity. We call it creativity and problem solving, and we call it extreme questions. So we might say, how do jelly beans affect your hiring practices? And it's kind of a ludicrous or extreme question, but it gets you into a curious mode of. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. 
free range curiosity or divergent thinking before you get into your convergent thinking or one best solution. So that's one of the areas that we play with in Applied Curiosity Labs training and bringing that kind of thinking to, like I said, creative problem solving and innovation. There is what I call peak curiosity, which is specifically using curiosity for sales and influence function. And that's a pretty powerful way to use curiosity in an applied way as well. So let's get deeper into that. So you mentioned divergent and conversion thinking. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So divergent thinking is many possible solutions. So that's where you can get some crazy questions. Engineers hate this. Creative people love it. But it's good for all of us because when we have gone into a negotiation with convergent thinking, we may be, like I said, in persuasion mode too soon. But if you go in with divergent thinking, which is many great solutions, many great opportunities, before getting into convergent, one optimal solution in the problem-solving example, or one optimal proposal in the negotiation example, you need to be able to start more divergent and get convergent. So understanding those distinctions and where you are in the process by playing with curiosity can be really powerful as a problem-solving tool and a tool for your, you know, for your negotiation. And are you suggesting that we use divergent thinking during the actual conversation with the other person or just by ourselves during the preparation? That's a great question because cultivating, and I'm going to kind of step off of that question to enhance it with the fact that we are all born with curiosity. And that's very well documented in early studies of infants and eye tracking. And then that curiosity either gets cultivated, but more often stifled by children should be seen but not heard upbringings or upbringings that value the one right answer over valuable questions or discomfort, extreme discomfort with uncertainty or extreme discomfort with the possibility of being wrong. But we can buff up our curiosity muscles. So I, you know, I say going to the curiosity gym and there's very specific exercises that we do to buff up those muscles. Once you have that and those buff muscles, coming back to your question, you can do these exercises with yourself all the time. It's like driving. You know, you don't have to be completely aware of now I'm going to look in the rear view mirror. Now I'm going to look to my left. You just kind of get this flow of curiosity. So you're playing with these divergent thinking muscles all the time. Now, I still would argue that going into a negotiation where you are not sure of all the variables, it would be good to do divergent thinking, go in with curiosity and play with that in the negotiation, unless you are in a persuasion situation where you already know what outcome you want. And it's not a distribution of resources. It's party A is convincing party B. Then you can probably start in more of a convergent using the principles, the well-known principles of persuasion, authority, reciprocity, scarcity, liking, social proof, consistency, the tenets of persuasion that are well-documented in the literature. Okay, interesting. Let's give an example here. So let's say we're going into a salary negotiation, pretty standard situation. How would you use divergent and convergent thinking in that process during the conversation? Are you already sure that salary is the only thing that you're negotiating? Good question. Let's change the semantics here. So it's not salary per se, it's compensation. It's the compensation package. The offer has been presented. Okay. So potentially you're looking at all of these things that the offer is including, but you are not aware of what might not be in the package. Maybe A, they're holding something back, or maybe there's something 
that they've never negotiated before. You know, maybe they don't have a fast track per se, but they might create one on your behalf, or they don't have a mentorship program, but they might create one on your behalf, or they don't have where they have paid for you to get your MBA, but hey, it's there for your asking if you just ask. So it's still important in this case to, to say, this is really an interesting package. Thank you very much. And I want to explore, if you were me, what would be some things that you would consider that would be crazy asks that you've had people ask that has got you thinking about different ways that you could look at compensation? I mean, this is just you know off the top of my head, depending on the relationship of the person with whom you're negotiating. But I, let's do a little divergent thinking. Is there anything, are there any things or elements of this compensation package that I should be curiously exploring? And that is the kind of thing where helping the other person become more of a divergent thinker as well. If you're only in the negotiation mode of trying to influence the other person, you're kind of less in negotiation, more in persuasion, I guess is, is a better way of putting it. Then I use something called peak curiosity. And peak curiosity is manipulating familiarity to put the person at the optimal level of curiosity for where you are in the negotiations. Okay, so if I'm creating a standard XY graph on the vertical Y-axis is curiosity and on the horizontal X-axis is familiarity. And imagine a kind of a mushed but inverted U with the tip of the U being peak curiosity. So at the zero, zero point, there's no familiarity, there's no curiosity, you can't be familiar with what you don't even know. So you're not necessarily familiar with anything other than what the offer is in front of you in this particular case. Now on the complete other end, very familiar, you might be so expertise in negotiating because you've negotiated for yourself many, many times, and you have never, ever, ever heard of any of the things except for salary vacation, stock options, what else? What's a, another generic thing you're negotiating? Maybe those things. So you think those are the three things you're very familiar with in negotiating. You're less curious about what else you could be negotiating. So that's evaluation for yourself. But maybe the person with whom you're negotiating is also less curious because they always negotiate on those three items and you want to pique their curiosity. So you may need to make them less familiar with the process by bringing in things that you've heard other people negotiate and to see if they're familiar and can be less familiar with that process in order to pique their curiosity. It's hard. I hope I'm doing a good job creating a visual. Maybe I'm not, but using familiarity to dial up and down people's curiosity can be a very powerful influence tool. I like that. And I think what we're doing here is we're, we've always talked about the importance of curiosity on this show, but it's often difficult to negotiate with somebody who has a very rigid mindset it's like, if I'm being curious and trying to be creative, how do I negotiate with somebody who is not <laughs> curious right. or creative? And by asking questions in this way, it's almost like you are leading them into being more curious and creative through the process, which helps to aid in the negotiation process. Right. I mean, and it's hard to say, be more curious, and it's hard to say, be more creative, but it's easier to manipulate and I mean manipulate in the sense of a dial, not like a negative connotation of manipulate, but it's easier to dial up and down people's familiarity. A good example is, let's say you are in the HR function and you have been 
just kicking it, just crushing it in HR. But you want to move from a support to a line role because you want to end up in the C-suite, right? So you're kicking it in HR and your boss knows that you're just crushing it in HR. You want a promotion, so you want to move into a sales role, let's just say. Well, to go into your boss and make them more familiar with you, even though they're really familiar that you're just crushing that role, you tell them how great it is, you've rolled out this compensation package, you've orchestrated this whole kind of organizational change, you've done all of these things that are just super in line with your HR function, your boss is not going to be that curious about you because they know you're crushing it in the HR function. So you need to make them less familiar with you, piquing their curiosity so that they can start thinking of you in a different way. That's one of the biggest mistakes when you're negotiating to move from doing really well, kind of the Peter principle, really well in one role into a different role. We tend to continue to sell ourselves in the existing role versus manipulating familiarity and having that boss say, wait a minute, I didn't know these skills about you. This is really interesting. Have you read the book Mating in Captivity? No, but I have it on my list. Nice. Yes, it is a great book. So um, for those of you out there who aren't familiar with the book, it is written by a woman named Esther Perel. And uh, she is a relationship therapist, but she focuses on intimacy and eroticism within marriages. And so check out her TED Talk. It's really great. And if you like the TED Talk, then go ahead and check out the book. So one of the things that she said in the book is that sometimes the reason why eroticism goes down within a relationship is because you become too familiar. And so you have on one extreme of the of the relationship where you just met the person and you're infatuated, everything about them is interesting and the eroticism levels are very high. It doesn't take much to light that spark. But then as you get familiar, it's like 20, 25, 30 years into the relationship. How do you create that spark? And what she would say is you need to create what she called a an erotic synapse, where it's like you create distance between you and your partner so you can become unfamiliar again. And so you engage in different activities where it's like, oh, I've never seen you in that light. So for instance, if your partner is a musician and you haven't seen them perform in, in a few years, just because that's what they always do, go to the show, see them act in a different way. And it's like, oh, now you're interesting again. Now I'm curious and I want to explore. And it seems like that's what we're trying to do, but in a business sense, to light that spark again. So they're interested in you in a new way. It is. That's a great example because, and there's a time when you want peak curiosity in your partner, in your boss, or even in the person to whom you're selling. So if you're introducing a new product to one of your customers with whom you've transacted on product A for 20 years, but now you're introducing a new product, product B, you want to pique their curiosity. But at the time they're about to sign the contract or walk down the aisle, or, you know, is not the time you want to peak curiosity. You want them to be extremely familiar and low curiosity at the time you're closing a transaction. When you want to spark it up, either a relationship, a new job, a new product, a new way of looking at you, that's when you want to peak curiosity. So the expert bias really plays havoc with, it can be a curiosity killer. So you need to figure out when you need to kind of roll down your familiarity for yourself when you're looking at innovating. Maybe you're stuck in your ways. You may need to do it with your partner, your boss, or even with whom someone you have transacted business for a long time, but now you're 
introducing a new product. I mean, the worst thing in real estate was you've got someone, you've showed them houses or you've showed them investment property, and now they're about to buy. And right when they're about to sign on the line, they're very familiar with the market. You say, you know, there are these four other properties that I forgot to mention. That's not the time to pique curiosity. <laughs> That's a really great point. Because at that time, when you're about to close the deal, you're looking for, you want to maximize trust and security. And people feel more secure when they feel like they, they have a more thorough understanding of the situation. And so that kind of goes right into what you were saying. Getting them super curious at that point just gets them to ask more questions. Now you have to give more answers in order to get them back to a level of security and comfort. Absolutely. And in a negotiation, when you get to the point where you're ready for persuasion, that is absolutely not the time to be peaking curiosity. Exactly. You know, when you're ready to persuade because you've negotiated all the division of resources and now you're just persuading on the final points, then you need to be clear about where you want to be on that peak curiosity graph with the person with whom you're negotiating. Right. And so one of the things that I, I like to talk about on the show is preparation, because I feel like it's one of those things that's so obvious that people often miss, because in, in numerous studies, they show that one of the key differentiating factors between subpar negotiators and excellent negotiators is their willingness to take the time to prepare effectively. So if there was a way for the audience to kind of operationalize this idea of curiosity before the negotiation happens, during the preparation stage, what are some tips that you would give for them as they prepare for the negotiation? Okay, that's a great question. One self-preparation is to understand that there are information gaps. And George Lowenstein from Carnegie Mellon is kind of an early curiosity researcher. He describes these information gaps. He describes the gap between what you want to know and what you know. And I think that that's a pretty easy gap to fill. We can fill that without much preparation. You know, we look, clicked BuzzFeed to see what's our horcrux, what's our spirit <laughs> animal, whatever, right? But filling the gap between what you want to know and what you need to know is a very different gap to fill. Because most of the time when we approach something, we approach it with criticism, judgment, fear, or complacency. So one of the preparations is just learning to swap and elevate curiosity ahead of judgment, criticism, fear, and complacency. So when you come to a negotiation, you just heighten that curiosity ahead of those things. And don't mistake calm for the right answer, because that's affect heuristic. And I won't go down that rabbit hole. But if you elevate curiosity, then you can start to search, let's operationalize it one step further. So now you've elevated curiosity, and you're going into this negotiation, and you want to do some preparation. What is the easiest thing that you can do? Well, you can search for an uncommon commonality. So a commonality, where'd you go to college? The Ohio State University. You always have the, to have the the in there. The Ohio State. What, yeah. what, was your, what was your mascot? Brutus, the Buckeye. Okay, Buckeye. So you are walking down the street in Cleveland. Okay. And you see someone with Brutus, the Buckeye sweatshirt. You're like, hey, that's a commonality. Dude, yeah. You know, that's, you're like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Now you are walking in Brussels, Belgium, and you see someone with Brutus the Buckeye. You're going to be going and getting a, a Belgian beer or some chocolate or something with that person because that is an uncommon commonality. So the power of finding those uncommon commonalities, it's pretty obvious when you think about it. But what we don't do so often is take the time to 
find an uncommon commonality. And you really don't even have to love someone or even like someone to find an uncommon commonality. You can look. And how can you do it? Well, a lot of times you can just look on social media, see, hi, hey, wait, they're a longboarder. I'm a longboarder. Or, oh, their daughter rode horses. Or, oh, I see that they are college football fans. I hate college football. And I can, whatever it is, you can find something. And the more uncommon, if you bring that to the conversation and there's an ideal time to bring it into the conversation, which is the beginning of a conversation or beginning of a negotiation, then everything is filtered through that uncommon commonality. And that's where the liking principle of persuasion just works like magic in a negotiation. So that's something where you can elevate curiosity ahead of criticism, judgment, fear, and complacency. And in doing that, just do one thing, which is find an uncommon commonality. And that's just a very take home. You could do that in your very next negotiation. I love this. And I will I will restrain myself from asking the obvious question uh, from me, which is, how in the world did you not know that Brutus was our mascot? I'll leave that. I will leave that alone. Because um, it's not a duck. It's not a duck. Unbelievable. I We're, see. I don't even. Not not, now I'm questioning having you on, on this show. <laughs> and I didn't even go to Oregon, but. I went to Washington University in St. Louis and we were bears. And I think the only football game I went to, like the quarterback ran, started running with the ball the wrong way. I mean, no. So I am a duck all the way. That's sorry. (laughs) Well, let me summarize that last point that you made, because I think there are a lot of gems in there and I want to make sure that the audience got it. When you said earlier, the gap between what we don't know and what we want to know, that's pretty clear. Okay. So now what I need to do in my preparation is I need to do my research in order to find that information beforehand. Now, of course, the internet and, and whatever tools we're using to find that information can only go but so far. And now we can use that to inform what kind of questions we want to ask during the negotiation in order to close the gap completely or as close to completely as we can get. But then one of the things that you you said that was really brilliant is the gap between what we want to know and what we need to know. And this is really important. And now I realize that I need to sequence these episodes and have the episode about confirmation bias come like right before (laughs) this episode. Yes, please. (laughs) Because when it comes to decision making, a lot of times there's going to be a preferred conclusion, a conclusion that we want to happen. So for instance, an obvious one is, um, oh, I have a son. So he's two and a half years old. And like every other parent in the world, I think he's perfect and the best son in the world. So if a we have parent-teacher conferences coming up in an hour and 15 minutes, which is kind of strange to me because I'm mean, he's in daycare, but whatever. If we have <laughs> this conference and the teacher says, Kai is just brilliant. He is so smart. He did X, Y, Z the other day. Kudos to you for creating such an incredible human. I'd say, well, that's great. I I think we're done here. That's good enough. (laughs) Good enough for me. But that's not what I need to know. I need to know the whole situation in in order for me to get a holistic view of what's really going on. Because maybe... I need to be curious at that point, um, because even though I'm feeling calm and good about the scenario because I've reached my preferred conclusion, that's a trigger to me to become more curious and ask more questions to uncover something that she might not have said that might be an issue that I need to deal with at home. That is spot on. I mean, I don't know how much time we have, but this particular gap can actually save your life. By mining the gap between what we want to know and what we need to know, you can actually save your life. And especially if you 
accompany that with asking one more question. I don't know if you have time for a quick scenario or for running out of time. No, let's do it. Okay, so let's do it. So my son, when he was 17, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he was fine. But a couple of years after that, which was about two years ago, he was experiencing extreme vertigo. And it was right after this whole series of events, including my mother dying of brain cancer. So this was salient. This whole brain cancer thing was salient. The doctor ordered an MRI of his brain. I get a call. I wanted it done right away. I get a call on a Thursday from the scheduling coordinator. And she says, so when would you like it done? I said, we'd certainly like to do this MRI as soon as possible. He has to get back to college. We want, you know, as soon as possible. She goes, okay, where do you want it? I told her the closest hospital. She said, does he have any metal in his body? I said, he has a retainer in his mouth. Asked a few more questions, puts me on hold, comes back about five minutes later, and she says, it's all set. Monday, small magnet MRI. No problem with food or drink an hour before, no alcohol, 24 hours in advance, be there at 7.30, MRI at eight. I said, great. And I felt this incredible calm because we got it done. I had it scheduled for the following Monday. And that's really what I wanted as soon as possible. But when you're aware of the gap between what you want to know and what you know, and that how that gap could be different between what you want to know and what you need to know, you know that you may not be elevating curiosity ahead of complacency. It's why we don't get second opinions when the first opinion tells us what we want to know. We only get them when they tell us something we don't like. So I decided that that complacency may be a trigger that I needed to elevate curiosity. And I have this little metaphor for that trigger, which is a pogo stick. And don't ask me why it's silly, but I do. So I decided I needed to ask her one more question. So I said, what's the small magnet MRI? Is there a large magnet MRI, a small magnet? She goes, oh, there's a large and a small magnet MRI. But because he has a retainer in his mouth, I went ahead and scheduled him for the small magnet MRI. And I said, well, you know, should he have the retainer taken out because, you know, is the large magnet MRI more powerful? She says, well, I don't know. When I called the doctor's office, they weren't there. And I know you wanted it right away. So I just booked it. And I said, hmm, well, let me ask you this. If this was your son and they were looking for a brain tumor, would you wait to talk to the doctor to see what was the preferred protocol? She says, I probably would. I said, well, then let's. About two hours later, I got a call back from another scheduling coordinator admonishing me because I was so adamant about it being on Monday, which I wasn't. I just wanted it as soon as possible. And she said, under no circumstances would the small magnet MRI be protocol, given his symptoms and his history, only the large magnet MRI would be sufficient. Okay. So we had the large magnet MRI and it was fine. But what if we had had the small magnet MRI and it was fine? That would have told us what we wanted to know, but it wouldn't have told us what we needed to know. And we would have never known. So just understanding that difference, that simple difference in that gap and operationalizing it by asking one more question when you feel that you have approached something with complacency or fear or judgment or criticism can be a very powerful tool. And I think that one of the biggest problems is that the opposite of fear is not bravery. The opposite of fear isn't courage. The opposite of fear is curiosity. And if we recognize that, then we start to become more curious and using and able to use curiosity in ways that could be life-saving. Oh, so first of all, thank you for telling that story. I think that's very telling. To me, it reminds me of the research of Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So if anybody wants a primer of what seems to be everything ever studied in the history of social psychology, that's a great book to get into. But what it talks about is there are two systems of processing. There's the gut instinctual kind of emotional system of processing that lies beneath the surface. And then there is the logical 
critical thinking of processing that happens in our prefrontal cortex. That's higher level thinking. And oftentimes we make, actually the majority of the times we make our decisions using the lower level of processing. But what they found is in, in numerous studies is that when you are feeling positive emotions, you're more likely to utilize that lower level of thinking, which leads us to be less critical. And so this is one of the downsides of positivity, almost, in these types of scenarios. When you had that feeling of relief, it made you less critical. But given your training and your background in curiosity, you knew that that complacency, that feeling of calm was almost a signal for you to switch on that higher level processing and get curious again and ask a deeper question. And in this case, I mean, it, it was a very, very serious situation and, and you did the right thing. I totally concur with Daniel Kahneman's work. It's kind of the seminal work in all of my brain bug training. And I think it is, although for a lot of people, it's kind of a slog of a book. I think it's probably one of the most important books out there, period. But, you know, as psychology nerds, such as we are, I can concur that it's very, very, very important. And it's difficult because you know, this has to do with cognitive friction, right? Something that is easy, and it is one of the challenges of positivity and the whole science of positivity is lovely. But that cognitive friction is sometimes required for higher level and more effective decision making, whether we like it or not. Exactly. Oh, man, this was awesome. We could have, we, I, I feel like if we were kind of left to our own devices, we would just kind of go on and on, which means that we need to have you back on the show for sure, because this has been a lot of fun. And I, I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of this. So I want you to give a serious shout out to your podcast because it, it's one of my favorites. Well, thank you. So it is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. It is the podcast for the relentlessly curious. So it is not topical, except for the one through line is using curiosity to explore industry, culture, counterculture that are outside the boundaries of the ordinary. So from extraterrestrial specialists to award-winning filmmakers to micro-dosing psychedelic aficionados and everything in between. That is so cool. <laughs> that is so cool. Well, gives me carte blanche to talk to anyone. I love it. Right. Good deal. Well, thank you again, Becky, for coming on the show. This was really helpful. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're finding this information helpful, please remember to leave a review and subscribe. Our goal is to teach this to as many people as possible. And every time you leave a review, it makes it easier for people to find us in the search engines. With your support and listenership, we've grown to the point where we are now the number one ranked negotiation podcast, and we have listeners in 140 different countries. We appreciate your continued support, and please continue to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Remember, everybody who connects with me gets a personal message from me eventually. It takes time because more and more people have been reaching out, but I want to hear from you, and we actually get to chat. So continue to reach out. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you in the next one.